All right, today is the fourth of seven issues that we're looking at in our series called God's Views of the News. And we have looked at the issue of abortion, the issue of origins, creation and evolution. Last week we looked at the issue of what the Bible teaches about homosexuality. And today, page 19 in your notebooks, capital punishment. We're going to be looking at the issue of capital punishment. The issue of capital punishment has been a topic of discussion in recent years because of things like Timothy McVeigh, who was the bomber of the federal building in Oklahoma City. Some say that murderers should be put to death for their crimes. Others say they should spend the rest of their lives in prison so they can think about and agonize over what they've done. Some see it as barbaric and even anti-Christian. Others see it as the only way to preserve justice and social order. But what does the Bible teach about it? As we've been doing in the previous three lessons, rather than just reading through the material, uh, as you know, my habit is to just try to explain or try to illuminate as best I can and offer some things that are not in the material itself because you can read the stuff on your own. And so I'd like to do that here. I would like to begin this by giving you some ways to think about and frame this issue of capital punishment. As you begin thinking about of this issue, I think it's helpful to do so by considering why we think that we should treat animals different from from humans. And I hope you'll see why I think that's a decent place to start. The truth of the matter is we do treat animals different than than humans. Uh, In America, we still do for the most part. Our, our, Our animals get treated amazingly well. And, and some of our humans don't get treated all that well, but still, they're not quite, they're not quite equal. And uh, I think most of us would agree they, they shouldn't be. And so we treat animals differently than humans. We treat humans with greater respect than we do humans. So, I mean, for instance, we kill animals to keep the population down. You know, uh, states have hunting laws and give hunting licenses and so on, and one reason that they're willing to do that is because it helps keep the animal population from overpopulating, overcoming uh, the territory. And so it keeps the animal population down. We do that by by killing animals. Uh, We kill animals for food. So we kill animals to keep population down. We don't do that with humans. Now, I say we don't do that with humans. You know, abortion... Uh, was conceived by some to be a means of doing that very thing. Uh, in the in the sordid history of abortion, if you ever want to Google the name Margaret Sanger, S-A-N-G-E-R, S-A-N-G-E-R, that's a that's a scary history. And Margaret Margaret Sanger was the founder of Planned Parenthood. And you read the views of Margaret Sanger, and uh, you'll get uh, goosebumps. She believed in eugenics. She believed in all sorts of things. So there were people who saw abortion as a means of keeping the population down. Further, they were very explicit about the the need to have abortion to keep undesirables from populating too much. I mean, Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, said that uh, sterilizing uh, people who were uh, mentally incapacitated was a good thing because this is a quote from a Supreme Court decision because three generations of imbeciles is enough. So there are people who view it that way. But for the most part, uh, they keep that history under wraps, and they keep it under wraps because they know it's not acceptable. It's not acceptable because we all have the notion 
that humans are on a different plane than animals. We treat them differently. We kill animals to keep population down. We kill animals for food. We don't do either of those with humans. And so there are two options for you as to why we do that. We do that. Now why? Why do we see humans as better and to be afforded a better treatment than animals? One option is it's simply a matter of time. In other words, we're further ahead than they are. In the evolutionary scheme, and I mean that way, that's what many people believe, we're just further ahead. It's just a matter of time. They will be us eventually, but it's just a matter of time. And for now, we've got the upper hand. We're at the top of the food chain. And so it's a matter of, for many people, we treat humans differently because of, of time. But it is a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there. It is survival of the fittest. And frankly, when push comes to shove, if you need to get rid of some undesirable humans, if you have that view, then you might just legislate to do that. Read the history of Nazi Germany, and that's exactly what they believed and exactly what they did. But for some people, it's just time. But of course, the other option is we treat humans differently because we are different qualitatively, different because we are different by nature. And the Bible teaches that that we are qualitatively different from animals. And that qualitative difference is seen in the fact that we are made in the image of God. And that's what we have as the first bullet point for you on page 19. Biblical basis for capital punishment. The Old Testament commands it. Genesis 9-6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. So God says, you kill someone, that's what the phrase shedding their blood is about, then you are going to have your blood shed by man. But he also gives the reason for, here's why. Because the life you've taken is a life that's qualitatively different than other life. This is the most important form of life on my earth. That of humanity. Why is it qualitatively different? Because humanity, man, is made in God's image. In the image of God, has God made man? And I want you to notice with regard to this command of God in Genesis 9, that Genesis 9 is after the entrance of sin into God's world. And here's why I bring that up, because... In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, you all know the story of God saying, uh, the account of creation and saying, when he came to the sixth day of creation, he made humanity. And in making humanity, he made them different from the rest of creation, making them in his image. But then you have Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, you have the entrance of sin. So that now the, in, the image of God the reflection that man is to have of God so that when God looks at his crowning achievement in humanity, what God sees is someone who is like himself. Someone who thinks like God, someone who talks like God, someone who acts like God would act. That's what God made us to do and with the capacity to do. But sin comes into the picture. And that image is now distorted 
or as you all have heard me say, those mirrors that we were made to be to reflect God back to God are now cracked. Cracked mirrors. And you know how it is when you look in a cracked mirror. You can see the image, but it's distorted. What you have now in humanity is a distorted image. But Genesis 9 is after Genesis 3. It's after the fall. It's after the entrance of sin. So even though the image is distorted, it's not obliterated. Even though it's marred, it's not erased. It's still there. Those of us, humanity, who are made in the image of God still bear that image even after the entrance of sin is the point. That hasn't changed. Further, Genesis 9 is after sin, but it is the entrance of sin, but it is before the giving of the law of Moses. This is important. Because if capital punishment were only given in the Bible in the law that God gave to Moses, then one could rightly argue we are no longer under the law of Moses. But Genesis 9 is before God gave the law to Moses. And so this is based upon a universal principle that applied after, applies after the fall and before the giving of the law and continues to this day. And what is that principle? We're made in the image of God. And in protecting that image, God instituted a punishment appropriate for that crime. If you take the life of one who bears the image of God, God says your life will be taken. And that's why the first sentence of that next paragraph says, murder is wrong because it is destroying one made in God's image. Now, this is not in your notes, but there is a, uh, a Latin phrase uh, that is pronounced this way, lex, L-E-X. So lex means law. And uh, the next word is talionis. And it's T-A-L-I-O-N-U-S. T-A-L-I-O-N-U-S. Talionis. Lex, law, talionis. And here's what it is. It's the law of retaliation. And the law of retaliation is given in your Old Testament, and it's uh, actually quoted in your New Testament. And you're familiar with it. You know it this way. An eye, how does it go? An eye for an eye. And a tooth for a tooth. It's actually found in Exodus 21 and verses 23 and 24. Exodus 21, 23 and 24. And it says you are to take life for life, hand for hand, foot for foot, bruise for bruise, burn for burn, it says. Lex talionis, law of retaliation. What's that all about? Why did God give that? Here's why. It was not as it came to be, and Jesus had to correct in Matthew chapter 5, it was not to get revenge. It was to exercise justice. Justice and revenge are not the same thing. And God was giving parameters for justice to be done. In other words, the, the punishment that you mete out as you exact justice, if it's going to be just, must be a punishment that fits the crime. So it's going to be tit for tat, hand for hand, foot for foot, 
Life, life for life. And so God gave this lex talionis, law of retaliation, to protect. It was a protection against arbitrary and cruel punishments that did not fit the crime. But God is very much about justice being done and the punishment actually fitting the crime. So murder is wrong because it's destroying one made in God's image. Capital punishment is based on the Genesis account of creation. And as I've said, this verse is pre-law, universal principle, not part of the law given to Moses, so it still applies. This principle applies to premeditated murder, but under the Mosaic law, many offenses besides murder were punishable by death, rape, adultery, fornication, disrespecting one's parents. Sometimes you want to go back to that one, don't you? Witchcraft, cursing God, leading others to worship false gods, giving false testimony to, to name a few. As I mentioned the last week, uh, that uh, those, those capital offenses, if you make a list of those, those uh, fall into a category of clear and present dangers to the health of the nation. And so these were serious offenses to God because they presented a danger to the uh, progress and the continuance of and the well-being of the nation of Israel. But we don't have that today. Now note this, though. Last sentence of that paragraph. In a capital case, two or three witnesses of the crime were required for conviction, according to Deuteronomy 19. Circumstantial evidence was not sufficient grounds for, for death. And so you had the death penalty as a universal principle for murder, you had it for other offenses under the law. We're not under the law, but as part of that law, God required that the evidence be absolutely unequivocal about the guilt of the individual. And if it's going to be a capital offense, that ought to be the way it is, right? So it couldn't be a circumstantial case. It had to be on the basis of two or three witnesses. And God upped the ante because if those two or three witnesses turned out to be false, guess what happened to them? Capital punishment. So you better have the goods if you're going to make a claim on a capital offense. Now, I'd just like to make one side comment about the two or three witnesses of Deuteronomy 19 and verse 15. Deuteronomy uh, 19.15 says, Every word must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's what it says. That is quoted in your New Testament in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20 in particular in, uh, in, in verse 18. And in that passage, you may remember, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go to him. And if he hears you, you've won your brother. If not, tell how many? Bring along, or excuse me, bring along two or three others. You know, why, you know, why are two or three others? Not what, why not five or six? I mean, you might be a big guy. <laughs> Maybe I need some help. If it's just outnumber them, why two or three others? Well, the two or three others goes back to Deuteronomy 19.15. How do I know that? Because Jesus says, so that, and he quotes Deut Deuteronomy 19.15, so that every word will be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And then he goes on to say, and if he won't hear them, then they give their evidence to the church. And if the person will not hear the church, then they are actually put out of the church. That's a sort of judicial proceeding within the church. But it only goes forward on the absolute evidence of these two or three witnesses plus the original offended party. And if you don't have those goods, nothing goes forward. Does that mean the 
accused is not guilty? No, it just means we don't know. And so we can't move forward with it. And then the next verse says this. Jesus says, And where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am with them. Now, what do you think that two or three refers to? This whole proceeding, in context, where two or three witnesses have established the validity of the case. Why do I take a minute to go through that? Here's why. I can't tell you how many times I've had people quote to me where two or three are gathered together, being like a church, a worship service. I've got somebody I know right now who has church in his house, and, and the location isn't the problem. It's just he really doesn't have a church. There's no pastor. It's just two or three gathered together. But where two or three are gathered together, there I'm with them. So we have church, says he. No, you don't. There's more to church than two or three people showing up in your living room. It has some offices. It has some a mission to carry out. It has some objectives. It has a whole bunch of stuff that the New Testament gives us. So if you're in the habit of quoting two or three gathered together as being a church, or you've got a friend who does that, now you know the deal with Matthew 18. Back to page 19. The New Testament, in addition, expects that capital punishment will be carried out. Romans 13 and verse 4. He, that is the governmental authority, is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. And if you just hold your finger here for a second, turn to the next page, page 20. And in the middle of page 20, you see that bullet point right in the middle that says, God has delegated legitimate authority to human government. You see that? And then it says, one aspect of this authority is the power and right to punish evildoers. When this passage speaks of such authority, it uses the expression, the sword. And I wanted to point that out to you because we should have had it on page 19. But it says he's an agent of, of wrath to bring punishment on the evildoer, back to page 19. And then Paul, who wrote that, says he does not, I'm quoting, he does not bear the sword for nothing. You know what they did with the sword? They uh, beheaded people. It's capital punishment. It's expected in the New Testament as well as a legitimate function of government. Now, why don't we see then capital punishment, you know, in our day take place very much? In fact, the few times that it happens, it's on CNN. It's a really big deal. It's usually someplace in Texas. You know, don't mess with Texas, as they say. Well, here's why. You know, for 150 years, we, we had capital punishment. It was, it was legal. It was carried out. And uh, the Supreme Court issued a decision in the last century that uh, said it was unconstitutional because it violated the Eighth Amendment, which prohibits, quote, cruel and unusual punishment. And so capital punishment was actually considered unconstitutional for several decades until the Supreme Court overturned that decision just a few decades ago. And now it's considered constitutional. Again, it's okay for states to execute uh, criminals by, via capital punishment. But once you've had several decades of not being able to do it, it's going to be hard to get many of the states to reenact it. 
And so now it's a state-by-state thing. Michigan does not have capital punishment. Texas does. And so you have some states who do and some states who don't. Further, there is the red tape, frankly, of our judicial system. One of the reasons you don't see it carried out often, even in the states that have it, is because you get 35 appeals. I made up that number. But it seems like you get 35 appeals that take 40 years for you to go through until you've exhausted all of your appeals and you finally make an appeal to the Supreme Court for a stay of execution. And if they reject your appeal, well, then it's on and CNN brings the cameras on. But that's why you don't see it very often is because it's been on again, off again in terms of its constitutionality. Just a quick word about the cruel and unusual punishment, and then we'll, we'll move on. Eighth Amendment to the Constitution, cruel and unusual punishment. At one point, our Supreme Court, our dear Supreme Court, said that uh, capital punishment falls under that prohibition of being cruel and unusual. And I would just say this, that um, I don't know how, I do not have any earthly idea how you interpret a document without placing, in it, placing it in its original context to come to understand what the people who originally wrote it intended by the phrases they used. That's the only way I know how to do that. That's the way I do, like, the Bible. What did the people who wrote it mean by the phrases they used in it? And the only way I can know that is by placing those phrases in the context within the Bible and the time it was written. That's the only way I know how to do that. And I'm betting that you probably think that's a fairly logical approach to take, to understanding a meaning. Well, you look at then an old document, a couple hundred years old, that has phrases like cruel and unusual punishment. And if you want to know what it might have meant to those people and what it didn't mean to those people, one of the things you could do is look at what they actually did. What did they practice? And if the people who wrote it actually practiced capital punishment, then it would seem to follow that for them, capital punishment didn't fall under the prohibition, cruel and unusual, which turns out to be the case. So you ask yourself, how does our dear Supreme Court come to a different conclusion? Because, and I'm not making this up, many on our Supreme Court don't care a whole lot what the people who wrote it meant by it. And and they say as much. That's not our approach to interpreting the Constitution. We're not interested in original intent. That's what that's called, original intent. We're not interested in original intent. The Constitution is a living, breathing document, say they, that conforms, expands to the times and the norms of the times. So those are the issues. You've got to decide where you come down on that. But that's why it's been up again, down again. It's up for now. All right, back to your, back to your notes. Page 20. Some objections to uh, capital punishment. And I have a number of those listed for you in the remaining pages. And what I'd like to do then is encourage you to, to read those when you get uh, an opportunity. But I'd like to just give some that are in those notes, in different forms, and offer some explanation in our remaining time. One objection to capital punishment is that Jesus would forgive. From a Christian standpoint, Jesus would forgive. Christians should forgive, so we shouldn't be engaging in 
and uh, promoting capital punishment. Well, two things about that. One, forgiveness and consequences are not the same thing. Okay, we've we got to get that straight. I counsel people all the time. They do, they, they commit sin against other people. They come to realize the error of their way, thank God. They're remorseful. They ask forgiveness. They repent. And they expect that there are zero consequences to what they did. And I have to explain those are not the same thing. We now have to do the work of, as best we can, trying to untwist the pretzel that you have created by what you did. There are, there are consequences to this. And so now this person that you hurt egregiously is going to be hurt for a long time. And the person whose trust you violated is going to take a long time before they can trust you again. That's a consequence of this, even though they forgive you. So the first thing, and, you know, use another obvious example. You get drunk, and you go out and you drive, and you, and you hit someone and kill them. You will probably be remorseful. And you may ask forgiveness of the family. And they may grant that forgiveness. But the consequences remain. That guy's dead. And there's stuff that has to be done to try to, to make amends as best you can with that. So Jesus would forgive. Christians should forgive. Certainly, Jesus would forgive. And we must forgive. But forgiveness and consequences are not the same thing. That's one. Secondly, that argument proves too much. Because if it's an argument against capital punishment, it's an argument against any punishment. If forgiveness means no consequences, then it means no consequences. In other words, you can't say Jesus would forgive, therefore don't do capital punishment, do life in prison. Well, life in prison is still a punishment. And if Jesus would forgive, now it's a matter of which punishment, this one or that one. And so that's one objection that folks bring that just frankly proves proves too much. Another argument that is often made by folks who object to capital punishment is that we should be involved in rehabilitation rather than retribution or payment, justice for a crime. And so you're going to have to decide what the Bible teaches about the purpose for punishment. Is it for the purpose of rehabilitation or is it for the purpose of justice retribution? I will m make the case that the Bible teaches that it's for the purpose of justice, not rehabilitation. Now, am I interested in, in rehab? Sure, I am. Of course, who wouldn't want somebody to be rehabilitated? But I am most interested in the individual seeing the error of his or her way and society at large understanding by virtue of the consistent application of justice to crimes that are committed that there is a price to be paid for that. And that's the tenor of the Bible as well. You've got rehabilitation versus, versus retribution. Rehabilitation tends to see man as being sick and needing healing. But the Bible does not see people as sick and in need of healing. We commit crimes because we are sinful. 
Man is a moral agent who makes choices for which he can and should be held responsible. So the rehab notion theory is based on this notion of man being sick needing healing or man being a machine that needs fixing. But the idea of justice or retribution is that he's a free moral agent. And man is therefore worthy of praise, which results in reward, or man is worthy of blame, resulting in punishment. Now think about that. Even our friends who you know, want to go the rehab route, they only want to do that you know, for, the, for, the, uh, for the punishment side, for the negative side. And so you find people saying, you know, I was out of my mind, I was sick, you know, I, I, the machine had some wiring that went wrong, so that's why I did what I did, right? So you've got the uh, insan- temporary insanity defense. Temporary insanity is very, is very helpful because I was only insane at the moment I pulled the trigger. I'm good now. But I was only insane at that, at that point, okay? So I got the temporary in- insanity defense. But it never works the other way. You never find somebody saying, you know, I gave away $1,000 to a homeless guy on the street because I was out of my mind. No, I did that because I'm a good guy. As a matter of fact, I'm telling you about it as evidence of what a good guy I am. Well, I happen to believe that. You give a guy $1,000 to a guy on the street, that's because you're a, a generous person. Pat you on the back, good for you. But just like you can be rewarded, you can also be punished because we are free moral agents. And so man, as a free moral agent, is to be held accountable both for his good and for his bad behavior. Now, what are some objections to to that? Capital punishment is applied unfairly. And so some would say, okay, I agree with you on all that. People should be punished just like they're rewarded. And justice should be meted out, but capital punishment is applied unfairly. But again, that's an argument that proves too much because the truth of the matter is there's much about the justice system that's applied unfairly. And so that same argument could be made against any form of punishment, not just capital punishment. And then let me give just a few other miscellaneous objections in our remaining time. How can you be for capital punishment but against abortion? Have you ever heard that? You, you hear this a lot on TV commentators and in, the, in the, the media, the written media. If you're going to be pro-life, a consistent pro-life position, say they, would be against abortion, yes, but also against capital punishment because you are pro-life. But here's the fallacy of that, at least for me. I'll tell you where I am with it, and then you have to decide where you are. When I say I am pro-life, I am pro-innocent life. I'm not pro-guilty life. These are two different kinds of life. The baby in the womb is innocent life. The baby in the womb has committed no, has committed no crime and is thus entitled to protection. That life is entitled to protection, as is every life, until that protection is forfeited by virtue of committing a capital crime. And then it is no longer innocent life. And so pro-life is a bit of a, a misnomer. 
And so the truth is, we believe that capital punishment, uh, that, that there are times for life to be taken, at least most of us do, unless you're a complete, absolute pacifist that does not believe at any time there's such a thing as a just war. If someone enters your home and is ready to kill your, your family, our law says, and I'm guessing most of you would say, that it would be legitimate to take the life of that person in defense of your family. Or to take the life of an invading army, soldier, if they're threatening your country. And so those of us who are pro-life are pro-innocent life. You are not innocent if you break in. You're not innocent if you invade. And the Bible teaches that same thing. Just a few others. What about deterrence for crime? Deterrence. Capital punishment doesn't work because it doesn't deter crime. Well, just a few things about that. One, let's just say for a minute it does not deter crime. Let's just say that's true. Here's what it does do. It deters that dude. Because he ain't doing that again. Okay? Capital punishment, people say, doesn't eliminate crime. No, it eliminates criminals. You eliminate enough criminals, guess what? Which is the second argument. You really can't tell whether it deters crime because we don't do it very much. If we only do it in a few states, and in the few states you do it, it takes 30 years to actually get it done, then it certainly is going to have no deterrent effect. But even without a deterrent effect, overall, which I believe it would have, but you can't prove that because we don't have enough data. But even without that, it eliminates the person who committed the crime. They will not commit any more crimes. And further, justice has been done and the sanctity of life has been upheld because we take it that, that seriously. This kind of death is undignified. That's another objection that is sometimes raised. It's undignified. To, uh, to take someone's life. Well, in one sense, all death is undignified. One. And that argues only against certain kinds of capital punishment, not against capital punishment itself. In the end, the question is not about dignity of death, but it's about equity and, and justice. Another objection is there's no opportunity to reform the criminal, but you've got to decide what the goal is. I believe that the Bible teaches that the goal is justice, not reform. And then, lastly, capital punishment violates human dignity. But hear this. It's specifically because of man's value and dignity that we punish his moral wrongdoing. We don't hear this. We don't punish animals for stealing or killing. That's what animals do for a living, literally. Okay? Okay? What do you, if they could talk, what do you do for a living? I kill and eat. That's what I do. And we don't punish you for that, bear, because that's what you do, because you're not a free moral agent. But it's specifically because of man's value and dignity that we punish his moral wrongdoing. We hold men morally responsible because of that dignity. It's based on the assumption that normal adult beings are rational and moral beings who knew better, who could have done otherwise, but who chose to do evil anyway and therefore deserve to be punished. 
In fact, arguably, it's undignified to force rehabilitation on free moral agents who don't want it. And that's my last point. The statistics on rehabilitation are awful. I mean, I'm I'm in favor of rehab. I've met lots of family members in and out of rehab. I know lots of people in and out of rehab. You know, if, if, if people get rehabilitated, it happens sometimes. But the recidivism rate, I just like to use that word. But it just means the, the repeat rate. When people go through rehab and they come out of rehab and they go in and out of, of rehab. And so it's, it, it's, it's arguable, I admit, that it's actually undignified to tell somebody to be rehabbed who doesn't want to be rehabbed. Okay? They're a free moral agent. You make your choice about what things you want to do. You understand the consequences that go with it. What do you want to do? All right. So the Bible teaches capital punishment, teaches it after sin, teaches it before the law, repeats it in the New Testament. It is what God designs in order to uphold the dignity of life in order, to, in order to show the value of human life because it's life made in the image of God. And the one thing we would have to do in our society to make sure it, it works is do it across the board, do it uh, efficiently, relatively quickly, as opposed to over a 25, 30-year 30 30 period, and then we would see the kind of, I think, positive effect that it would, that it would have. All right, thank you. We're done.